What's up, everybody? This is Fred Rachani. We have right here via Zoom a very special guest, an esteemed, well-respected guest. He's an acclaimed author. He is a PhD. He is a liberal arts professor at Penn State University. We are joined by the critically acclaimed, the knowledgeable Professor Tamir Sorek, who specializes in Middle Eastern studies, especially in regards to Israel and Palestine and everything going on. Sir, thank you so much for the time. It's an honor to have you on. This feels kind of like a, a basic but weird question to ask, given everything that's going on overseas. But uh, how are you holding up right now? Uh, hello, and thank you for having me here, Fred. Uh, it's very difficult. Uh, I, I grew up there. Uh, I grew up as, as an Israeli. I have Israeli friends. I have Palestinian friends. Uh, the amount of death is unbelievable. Uh, people are anxious, uh, and I'm anxious about the future on when we are going. Uh, and I, I feel the pain of uh, many of the people over there. Before we dive into Israel and Palestine, can you tell people a little bit about yourself as far as what drew you to the Middle East, the topic of the Middle East, and in particular Israel and Palestine? I grew up uh, in Israel on the border between Palestine, Israel, and Lebanon. Actually, and on, on the border itself, I could see Lebanon from the other side of the uh, of the uh, window. And uh, I grew up in a very tense environment. I grew up uh, afraid of what we call then terrorists uh, who might come and uh, kill us. Uh, in many ways, the nightmare uh, that became realized in 7 October for many people was the nightmare of my uh, youth. So uh, I think it, it for me, it was natural to be interested in the conflict and the origin of the conflict. Um, I did not know about the history before I started to study. And uh, only later in my life, when I studied to study sociology, took some courses in the university, I spoke with uh, Palestinian friends. Uh, I learned that there is a deep background to that, that um, those people who were launching missiles uh, toward me or trying to uh, penetrate the fence, uh, they're descendants of uh, people who were expelled from the same territory I lived before, uh, and uh, they're angry. Um, and uh, I, so I, I think once I had this understanding, this insight, I wanted to learn more. I wanted to learn more how we can solve the situation uh, with a way that will respect uh, the needs uh, uh, of everyone uh, from a humanistic point of view. And I think many of the uh, things that I'm doing directly or indirectly in my academic scholarship is related to this inner drive uh, to find a, a just solution that deals with the origin of the problem. I can imagine. So would you say when you, you were growing up, you were your concern wasn't, hey, what was the root of the problem? It was more kind of in, based in fear, right? As far as like, oh man, like these people- well, Of course, so yeah. when, you, when you grow up, you're, you're not uh, taking history courses. <laughs> you just know that you see, I, I saw the missiles coming from Lebanon above my head. So you do not try to analyze, you hide. And you are you support anything that the army will do supposedly to solve the problem, which is attacking the people who are uh, throwing it, uh, and you are, are not interested in the broader uh, picture of the of things. Um, it requires a lot of education and lots of developing the ability to listening to the other side in order to um, you know remove your fear aside and trying to make a, a rational assessment of what's going on. 
and also an empathetic assessment of what's going on based on understanding the other side. Absolutely. That, that's very well said. It's great that you took an interest in this and did a deeper dive and wanted to find out the truth for yourself. But when you decided to, to say to yourself, okay, now I want to teach the truth to, to other people and also seek solutions. Was there any apprehension from you and your family at first? Because even to this very day, it's still an extremely touchy and polarizing subject. In this day, it is even more than ever. And um, when I write uh, in the social media texts which are very critical of Israel, yeah, I'm getting a lot of pushback from friends, from family. Um, most Israelis now are in a situation of an extreme anxiety, existential anxiety. Uh, people are really, um, I think the events of October 7th really activated very deep fear in the collective imagination of Jews everywhere, not only in Israel. Uh, and uh, it's very difficult to overcome these uh, these barriers, these psychological barriers, and saying, look, uh, the um, conflict did not start at October 7th. In order to solve it, you cannot just think only about what happened on October 7th. Uh, and you can also, you cannot stop at October 7th because what is happening in, in Gaza um, is uh, not only uh, extreme in terms of uh, its uh, uh, its criminal uh, aspect, but it might uh, have long-term effects on our ability uh, and the ability of Palestinians and Israelis to live together. Look, it's been called a genocide by many experts or still media members calling it you know, a war, whether it be the Israel-Palestine war, Israel-Hamas war. Uh, from your vantage point, like unequivocally, what is it at this point as far as the conflict goes? I'm not a legal scholar. Uh, and genocide is a legal term. But I will refer to this aspect um, from the point of view of a sociologist and a social historian. Um, first, I see this conflict as a conflict, uh, as a settler colonial conflict. And settler con colonial conflict has the seeds of genocide in it everywhere. Sometimes it becomes real, sometimes not. But it is there. And in recent decades in Israel, the voices that call explicitly for genocide uh, gain closer um, proximity to the mainstream, um, especially elements of the religious Zionism who used a biblical code to imply that the uh, genocide-like scenario is possible and maybe even desirable. And these elements are now in the government. They have ministers in the Israeli government. So I, I think the background uh, for uh, committing a, ge a genocide was there even before October 7th. Um, and then October 7th came, and I think we shouldn't underestimate the event themselves in pushing this discourse into almost a consensus um, in Israel now. Because what happened there, this uh, vision of dozens of massacre when uh, civilians are being uh, murdered in close-run shooting, uh, and there, there are all these videos of torturing and the widespread cases of rape um, They and the abducting of children, they, um, as I said earlier, activated collective memories of Jews of extermination and brought these uh, existential anxiety to the highest level it has been, I think, this, since the uh, 1940s. The reaction of the Israeli public is that the only thing we can do to prevent a genocide is uh, by deterring our enemies and showing that uh, everyone who will ever dare to do that uh, will be exterminated. 
And this is an extremely dangerous situation because um, when you when you feel that you are a victim of genocide, you remove any moral constraints. And you you, you think here you, that there is a legitimacy for you to do whatever you can because you are uh, might be a victim of genocide. So the discourse we've heard in the Israeli public since October 7th is frightening. When you hear the president of Israel, Israel Herzog, saying that about October 7th, that an entire nation is responsible, and you connect that the call of the prime minister immediately after that for a revenge, it is a revenge against an entire nation, okay? And you cannot disconnect these statements, which were not only by the prime minister and the president, everywhere in Israel, to what is happening on the ground. Um, the, um, the Gaza Strip has lost over uh, the past two months, or, uh, approximately 1% of its population. And, and, and it is not over. We don't know when it will be. And um, it's in, in now um, I recommend it to uh, read a recent uh, report published by the 972 uh, website, an Israeli website, based on sources in the Israeli establishment, that in many cases, the target, the civilian target was chosen uh, in advance, and then they were looking for a pretext to destroy it. So, uh, so, so many uh, buildings in Gaza were destroyed in order to revenge or to deter or whatever you call it, with not a very concrete uh, tactical military purpose. It was done in order to destroy and to create fear and to kill. And 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 when the the price in human life was known in advance, this is not a mistake. So when we talk about today about thousand, maybe six, maybe thousands of children who were killed in the Gaza Strip, this is not a collateral damage. It is not a mistake. It, it, it was uh, known for those who committed it what the results will be, okay? So as I'm saying, I'm not going to uh, go into this legal debate if you consider it by the international genocide or not genocide, but the genocidal elements here are very clear. And uh, it means that the uh, international community, whatever uh, that means, should do something to stop it. It's, it's just horrific, too. And there's been a lot that's uh, come out you know, since uh, October 7th, right? I mean, at the time of recording this, New York Times just released a report that Israel may have known about this uh, you know, a year in advance. You know, Hadith, which is a publication you've written before, I believe reported that some officials have said that, hey, you know, we were kind of paraphrasing here. But, you know, they may have been firing indiscriminately at their own their own citizens, you know, on, on October 7th. As somebody who's very well connected to Israel, is that has that changed like the overall mood and tone from like the everyday citizens? Or at this point, as is, is it too late to kind of put toothpaste back in the tube and go and, and change the narrative, right? Because even like from October 7th, just to give you an example, like Joe Biden talked about, President Biden talked about how, oh, beheaded babies, this and that. And within the same day, the White House issued a retraction, but yet people are still parroting those same claims. So how has the mood changed, if at all, uh, with amongst Israelis? First, it did not change uh, because it does not it does not really matter. There were cases when the Israeli army killed some of the hostages, but these are not the vast majority. Uh, no more than several dozens out of the eight hundred uh, more than eight hundred civilians that were killed were killed by the Israeli force. Most of them were killed, were murdered in the houses, in in the in the in the party that was in the nature intentionally, deliberately by Hamas. Uh, the Hamas, Hamas took uh, the, with their progo cameras, 
documentation of, of these uh, executions. Um, uh, so the, the fact that uh, there you, you had some cases of uh, Israeli army uh, killing uh, the um, abductees and, and the hostages does not much matter for understanding the level of horrors and anger and the um, drive to take a revenge among the Israeli public. Um, I think there is much exaggeration uh, in certain uh, circles of the social media with these some cases of the uh, Israeli army killing uh, hostages. This is not the main issue. Oh no, I was I was referring to actually um, on October seventh as well. I mean, I, on actual October seventh because there were reports that said that. Yeah, know, yeah, there, there, there were reports, yeah. but this this is not the the mass. The, the this is not the um, the majority of what was happening. In Got the, it. Okay. So I, I don't think there is a change in the narrative, and I will say even more so that every with every day that passed, because you have so many survivors of the massacres and the rape, and their stories are coming to the media, uh, the anger only is growing. And when uh, the uh, hostages are coming back, and some of them were treated well, the media is amplifying the horrific case where they were not treated well, when, when children were, were tortured. Uh, you, you get, uh, the anger is only growing. It, it is not reducing. Uh, and now, so what are we doing with this anger? Um, the only way, it, since I my analysis of the dynamics in the Israeli society uh, is that I do not see an end to the anger uh, and to the drive to revenge. And therefore, this is the responsibility of the international community, especially the United States, uh, to stop this carnage. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first and foremost, thank you so much for that context. Like, yeah, as I mentioned to you off the air, there's so many different you know, quote unquote reports and you know misinformation flying around. So thank you so much for that clarification. I'm sure my audience will appreciate that. So you're talking about revenge and how the international community has to step in, but it seems like right now they just haven't been open to really stepping in. What does need to actually happen for for this to stop? And how do you see it kind of at, at least this initial wave kind of ending? There, I think there are two elements of tension here that should be we should be aware of. One is that when the Israeli leaders state that there are two goals, to destroy Hamas and to bring back the hostages, these two goals contradict each other, okay? If you destroy Hamas, there will be no one to negotiate with, uh, and you will probably kill all the hostages, okay? Uh, so there is a, a growing pressure inside Israeli society to prioritize the retain of the hostages. If this pressure will be strong enough, um, the Israeli government will have to get into a certain settlement uh, that will bring the hostages back, but also uh, will prevent Israel from continue uh, attacking Gaza because there will, there will be some international guarantee for that. So we will have to follow this internal struggle inside Israel to see where it's going. And the other thing is the electoral calculations of the Biden administration. Uh, at what point um, their fear of the progressive elements that protest uh, against the war, against the, the attacking of Gaza, uh, it will be stronger than the fear of, of the Biden administration for the more conservative, centrist element um, in his party and in the broader uh, public opinion in the United States. So these two tensions will determine where 
this uh, attack is going. From an international standpoint, do you think it's all contingent really on the United States just finally making a call saying, hey, ceasefire now? Or are there any other outside parties that could put a stop to this? The, the United States has the strongest leverage uh, toward Israel. I, I will say that uh, I can imagine also that Qatar has some leverage uh, toward Hamas, and they, if they have an interest to, to pressure Hamas leader to get into a deal that will just uh, take out a Hamas leadership out of the Gaza Strip, and then the Israeli government will be able to say to its public, look, we won the war. We watch. There, there are there, there are no winners to this war, yeah. But uh, it's just an an attempt to, of the Israeli government to face to save their face. So maybe this is something else that might help. You mentioned this didn't just start October seventh, of course, right? There's a whole historical context yeah. to, to everything, and I'm not going to ask you to do the entire history of Palestine and you know half hour or however long. But a lot of people have been using the word Nakba, which refers to you know, the catastrophe back in 1948 and comparing it to today, where there's even more people displaced uh, today. For some people that may be fuzzy on that or not as familiar, can you just talk a little bit about the 1948 Nakba and then just how it compares to today? Well, of course, 1948 uh, is the, the watershed of the conflict. Okay, so the Zionist immigration started already in the end of the 19th century, but uh, in 1948, uh, um, during the, uh, the the war, Israel, uh, or, or before that, the Zionist forces, before the state of Israel emerged, expelled about 750,000 uh, Palestinians outside of the armistice lines. This number has a wide margin of error, different estimates are given average. Uh, and uh, destroyed hundreds of, of uh, villages. And maybe even more importantly, after the war, they prevent them from coming back, okay? Because during war, people are displaced. The, the, the question is if they, they can uh, uh, come back. And it was a deliberate decision. Uh, it is far beyond tactical uh, purposes of the war. Uh, there was also demographic uh, motivations to create a state with a, a Jewish majority by reducing drastically the number of Palestinians. This is the uh, core of the uh, current conflict. Uh, we cannot solve it without treating that. Uh, specifically, the Gaza Strip uh, absorbed disproportional number of refugees. About two thirds uh, of the uh, rough estimate of the residents of uh, the Gaza Strip today are refugees or, de or descendants of refugees from 1948. Many of them from the area uh, which is adjacent to the uh, Gaza Strip or uh, also from the north, uh, from the city of Jaffa. Um, and um, the frustration of the people of Gaza starts there. Gaza has emerged to be a very large ghetto uh, um, of uh, uh, people who are uh, isolated from the entire war, uh, world. Um, Israel uh, occupied uh, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank in 1967. And basically since then, uh, Israel control the majority of the uh, Palestinian people. Um, there are also refugees elsewhere, but Israel control the majority of the Palestinian people. Uh, it, Israel tried to settle with Jews the Gaza Strip, and um, in, in 2005, uh, Israeli government came to the conclusion that uh, it's uh, too risky and too costly to keep it under direct control. They evacuated the settlements and. Uh, the uh, military also, but kept controlling the Gaza Strip from outside, deciding who is getting in, who can leave, what kind of commodity can go inside, uh, what kind of, kind of uh, stuff cannot uh, cannot uh, be there. And 
um, uh, complete control of the of the air, uh, limiting the fishing uh, industry that existed there before. And since the Hamas took control over the Gaza Strip uh, in 2006-7, um, the blockade on Gaza was installed in a very uh, strict way. And um, I should add to that that uh, the existence of Hamas in the Gaza Strip uh, has never been a, a, something that Israel really tried to dismantle. Okay, we should understand that uh, that uh, the government of Netanyahu, Netanyahu uh, came back to power in 2009, 2009 saw it as an asset. And Israeli leaders have said it explicitly. It's not my uh, speculation. They wanted to have Hamas there in order to avoid any attempt to get into a compromise with the Palestinian people. Hamas is a very convenient non-partner for this regard. And the fragmentation of Palestinians into sub-divisions. Uh, you have Palestinians in Lebanon, you have in the West Bank, you have in, in, in the Gaza Strip, you have in Israel. Any one of them is in a different political status with different leadership. It does not require Israel to really engage with the problem, not only of the military occupation, but also the Nakba, the uh, uh, expulsion and the destruction of Palestinian society in 1948. Um, and any future settlements, uh, if ever will be reached between Israelis and Palestinians, will have to deal with issue with this issue of 1948. So well said, and I appreciate all that insight and everything. So, I mean, this is kind of the, the loaded question, right? What people always, I'm, I'm sure, ask you, what is the ultimate solution? If it's a two-state solution, what does that look like? What needs to be done to be achieved? If it is one state, no matter what it's called, where you Palestinians and Israelis, you know, people of all walks of life live. Like, how does that look like? What What's it going to take to achieve that in the near future, if at all? Okay. Well, talking about the future is always risky. You know, it's difficult to predict uh, predict things, especially the future. Um, look, unlike many who are involved in political discourse about solutions, I do not want to um, exclude um, any solutions. I, I think there could be many different arrangements as long as they adhere to certain principles. Okay, so two state, one state, a confederation, I think everything should be on the table. Um, but um, you have to adhere to certain elements. First, the historical injustice that was done to Palestinians should be recognized and should be implemented without creating a new injustice. This is a principle. Second principle, um, a complete equality in political rights of everyone who lives between the river and the sea. Israelis, Palestinians, or there might be other people who do not identify as, as any of them. Um, the other thing is uh, a recognition of the right of self-determination of Israelis and Palestinians, which could take different forms. It's not necessarily a two-state solution. There are, there are other ways to do that. Um, and um, so once you recognize these principles, from here, I can see many ways. Because even this distinction between one state and two states is not so clear. It's not so clear. You, you can have a, a two states uh, with uh, very clear uh, borders that no one can, can pass, but you can have a two states within a form of confederation when people are free to move from one side to the other 
Uh, and there are also some strong confederate bodies of coordination, uh, which, is a, which is a solution that some political bodies bring to the table. But I think a, once you cross, once both sides, but I, I think it's more important for the Israelis because they are the strong side. The strong side has more responsibility. This is it. But once both sides cross this uh, understanding that these principles should be respected, um, the particular solution will come up. Okay. A another thing that I would like to say that right now, it is so difficult to talk about solutions. And I, I think what we have to focus on um, are two elements. First, to mobilize the international community for involvement and especially to stop the unconditional support that uh, Israel uh, is getting, especially from the United States, but also from some European uh, countries. Um, without this change in the international sphere, it will be very difficult to push to any solution because um, the place Israeli society is, is um, arriving now is not a place that will move without international intervention. International intervention does not mean that you should ignore what Israeli wants. You, you are, it will have to pass through convincing them, okay? But a complete and a drastic shift in the international sphere and the international uh, power balance is a required element. The other thing is that um, Palestinians and Israelis will have to work together on that. Uh, because the future is shared, the resistance and the struggle should come together. So I think any elements of Palestinians and Israelis work together toward solving the problem is very important as long as they adhere to this element. So I do not speak about, you know, just coming together and singing together. It should be a struggle together that recognize the imbalance of power, that recognize the injustice to the Palestinians in the current state of, of affair. It should be based on recognition that we practically live in an apartheid-like regime in, in, in the country. And from that point of view, Palestinians and Israelis should work together because this uh, joint framework, it what gar uh, will guarantee the mutual humanization against this um, current of dehumanization that is so widespread now. In terms of everything else that's going on now, you, you talked about the dehumanization. We've seen that, unfortunately, in the media and a lot of people's words, uh, Palestinian erasure. It feels like all the culture, everything's being ignored. Some students don't even believe that Palestine ever even existed. So what have you seen from, from your standpoint? And do you feel like we're going in a positive direction now? As bad as everything is, do you feel like we're going in a positive direction where it's now harder than ever to ignore the existence of Palestine and the Palestinian culture? I wish I would be uh, optimistic that we are going to a better place. I, I have some doubts. Um, if you talk about the academia, I, I will start with what's happening in the Israeli academia, because it has effects on, on that. Uh, Palestinian voice in Israeli academia are now under very severe attack. Um, like really any, um, any uh, expressions of even sympathy to the victims uh, in Gaza uh, is being interpreted as justifying the crimes of Hamas. It means that if you are Palestinian in Israel or in the Israeli academia, the only option for you is to remain silent. You cannot even bring your voice. And so many of my uh, Palestinian colleagues 
um, just avoid uh, speaking publicly. It is scary. You might be, you might lose your job. You might be arrested. So what's happening there is quite extreme. Um, but I see also uh, in, in the United States um, and um, uh, this bullying of uh, anything related to Palestinian rights. Obviously, they use some of the more extreme cases of of uh, you know activists to justify the massacre of October seventh to delegitimize the entire. Uh, a project of uh, Palestinian rights uh, and fight against the apartheid regime. And um, it, it is very unfortunate, especially when we talk here not only about uh, uh, administrations who, are, who might be unsympathetic to that, but there is a strong pressure from donors on the administration to take action against uh, pro-Palestinian uh, activists, uh, activists in campuses. Where it, it will go, I, I don't know. Obviously, it depends where you're talking about. In some universities, the uh, pro-Palestinian voice are very evident that it will be very difficult to dismantle them. Um, but I think we, talk, we, we are talking here about some, um, about only about some of them. There is a very wide, wide range of, uh, of universities in the United States. And uh, I think what we see now is polarization that some university will go very strong to one side, the other will go to the others. I do not, do not want to make any risking prediction where it will go in the near future. There's a lot of resistance, right? We, we talk about Hamas, obviously, that's the, the, the forefront, but there's also been conflicts, clashes with Hezbollah uh, at the border of Lebanon. There's uh, Houthis, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, from uh, Yemen as well. Uh, we've been hearing about these a lot in the news, but are there any other resistance groups or other parties who may you know, get involved in this violence? The I think the nightmare of the United States administration is undermining other uh, uh, pro-Western regimes in the region. Um, if the fighting continue, if more horror images are coming from Gaza, uh, um, that it might risk the regime in Egypt, that people who are now do not dare to go to the street. Once people will start to go to the street, it will be difficult to stop them and the regime might be forced to, to uh, at least making some threats toward Israel. Uh, similar uh, processes might uh, happen in Jordan or maybe in even uh, other uh, countries. And um, this is, uh, I think, what um, uh, might Cause the United States to put some pressure on Israel to uh, to stop the, the attack. So this is one development that uh, we might see. Now there are elements in the Israeli government who make an effort now to push Palestinians in the West Bank uh, to a point where um, they will do things that might justify their expulsion. I think this is uh, the dream, the fantasy of certain elements. Uh, in the Israeli government today, um, we all the eyes are, are on Gaza, but uh, since October 7, hundreds of Palestinians were killed also in the uh, in, in the West Bank, and it is happening on on a daily basis. Not that before that it it did not happen; it's a, just an increase of a tendency that took place also that. So we might see also some um, resurgence uh, in the Gaza in the West Bank. Um, which I assume will be crushed very violently, uh, but um, this is a, this is a possible scenario. Let's just say 
permit cease fire tomorrow, right? What would be the initial next steps? Because from what I've seen and, and read, the Gaza Strip seems uninhabitable at this point, at least in most parts. There is a major humanitarian crisis as far as famine and illness and, and everything else. What are the next steps? This is the thing. The current Israeli government does not have a clue of what they want uh, to do in the Gaza Strip, regardless of the fantasy of ethnic cleansing to, to Egypt. This is what they would like to see. Probably won't happen um, now. So even, okay, let's say that we, we achieve ceasefire. They, they don't have a plan. The only people who do have a plan are the most extremists who want to keep pushing toward the realization of ethnic cleansing. Uh, and um, so um, the, the only uh, hope here is that the United States would reinterpret and reconsideration its interests in the region and uh, would uh, make an effort to force Israel to at least end the 1967 uh, occupation. Now, within a political plan that uh, puts this as a, a, as a goal, as an end, it will be relatively easy to mobilize the international community, certainly here I think about the Gulf countries, to support the renovation of, 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 the, of the city of Gaza and to, and to rebuild it. Um, but how could you mobilize uh, these resources with a, a very fragile and volatile political situation that might destroy everything uh, again. So I, I, I do. I would like to hope that something will happen in uh, in American politics that um, will will cause the current administration to shift its policy, because the um, humanitarian crisis in the Gaza Strip now has become strongly connected to visions of future, of the long-term future. And uh, it become more and more difficult to connect this immediate humanitarian issue of millions of people who are displaced with a long-term vision for uh, Israelis and Palestinians in the region. Well, sir, we really do appreciate the time. This has been fantastic insight and historical context. We thank you so much. Before we let you go, for anybody watching or listening to this that feel, you know, everyday Americans, you know, everyday citizens that feel kind of hopeless or wondering, you know, what can they do to, to help end this violence and everything? They're feeling helpless from their couch, from their home. What advice would you give them? I will give the advice of going to your representative, going to your city hall, uh, going to any public official and call them to adopt a call for ceasefire. Uh, this goal has no purpose. Uh, the fantasy of uh, uh, destroying uh, Hamas is a fantasy. Um, and in order to achieve this fantasy, um, many, many people will pay with their own life. We, only, we will only deepen deepening the suffering. And therefore, Americans who are paying with their money uh, uh, for, for, for the fighting now should do something, should raise their voice. Um, I live in State College, Pennsylvania. I will be uh, this Monday in a meeting of the city hall uh, trying to convince the members to adopt a resolution calling for a ceasefire. I hope many people will do it also. In uh, two weeks, um, I will have a meeting with um, uh, Senator, uh, Fed Senator Federman um, of Pennsylvania 
in order to also to uh, call him to uh, join the legislators who called for a ceasefire. So this is something that we should do at the immediate level. The other thing that is very important for everyone who is active in this uh, field, keep the voice of uh, of humanity here. Don't try just to, uh, to, to be, I am pro-Israel, I am pro-Palestine. Be pro-human. Be pro-human and call for a human solution for everyone, for all the people who live between the river and the sea. Amazing, sir. Thank you so much for the time. Before I let you go, I want to give the, the, the floor to you to promote anything else you have going on. Uh, under better circumstances, I would love to have you back on to talk about soccer and politics with your background and everything. So I have a sports background, but you have uh, at least three books that I'm aware of. Uh, the Optimist, the Social Biography of Tafik Zayad. You have Palestinian Commemoration in Israel, and you have Arab Soccer in a Jewish State. Can you talk a little about those books and just any other work you have going on that people could check out? You know, I have lots of work on, on Middle East sports, especially about the sports of Palestinians and Israelis. And this is a work that, uh, I, especially my, my first book about Arab soccer in a, in a Jewish state, I'm still interested in, in this topic. Um, and uh, I, I worked a lot on a commemoration. So my second book was about a, the way Palestinian citizens of Israel construct and reproduce uh, their collective memory relating to the Nakba, but to other events in their political calendar since uh, 1948 and uh, until the book was published in uh, 2015. And uh, as you mentioned, my most recent uh, scholarly book was a biography of the uh, political leader and uh, poet uh, Tofik Zayad, um, who was uh, a, a, a devoted communist, a very known uh, Palestinian uh, national uh, poet, he was the mayor of uh, Nazareth. He was a, a member of the Israeli parliament also. And I titled uh, this book with his title, The Optimist, uh, because he was, a, he was a opti an optimist. And, uh, you know, this idea of optimism might uh, uh, seem very naive today and out of context. But I will adopt again here this very famous uh, phrasing of uh, Antoni uh, Antonio Gramsci. I'm... Uh, pessimistic because of the intellect, but I'm optimistic because of my will. Professor Sorek, thank you so much for your time. Bonus question. Is there anything you would, I know we could have covered a million other topics in this interview. Is there anything you wish I asked you in this interview? Um, I think you covered so well, so many topics. And um, I, I, was I was really happy. Not always uh, someone is happy with the question they get, but I think they, they were uh, very well focused. Uh, but I, I think one issue which I will not discuss in details is uh, this uh, per, this issue of humanization, how people can learn to humanize their enemy. Um, and um, what is the process and what is required from us in order to do this? Thank you, sir. I appreciate the time. Uh, please, if, you, if, you're at, if you're attending Penn State, Take his courses, uh, fantastic insight. Check out his books. We'll link it all in the show notes as well. Thank you so much, Professor Sorek. Uh, an absolute honor.